every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever bring. We live for you.
are here, you're working in this place, I worship you, I worship you, you are here, you're moving in our midst, I worship you, I worship are here, you're working in this place, I worship you, I worship you, you are a way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. darkness, my God, that is who you are. You are here, touching every heart. I worship you, I worship you. You are here, healing every heart. I worship stop you never stop working you never stop you never stop working even when i don't see it you're working even when i don't feel it you're working you never stop you never stop working you never stop you never stop working even when i don't see it you're working even when i don't feel it you're working you never stop
Jesus, you are our way maker. You are light. You are our strength, our peace, our hope. Um, you are love, God. You are everything to us. God, we pray that you would just draw us nearer to you this morning, that you would give us peace and joy, that you would make us more like you. Give us wisdom, God. Help us to love you with all our heart this morning and to hear your word and take it to heart. In Jesus' name. So we're going to go ahead and take a break and reset the stage, and we'll be right back. Thank you, David. Um, I want to put in my two cents worth. My wife and I have supported uh, kids from um, Compassion for a long time. Right now we're supporting Watson, who's in Haiti, and Tamir, who's in Indonesia. And for under $40 a month, if you, if, you, if you do this, you help feed a child every day. You help that child get to a school and, uh, and be involved in a church. And, and it's a tremendous opportunity. One of the things I like, and, and I don't mean to criticize, but a lot of other groups where you give, the money all goes into a big pool and then they kind of divvy it out. And that's not necessarily wrong. But the point is, for me, is that when I give to Watson, it goes to Watson. He's the one I'm supporting. In fact, you can go and visit, just like David did. You can go and visit right now. You can't because of COVID-19. But anytime, if you let them know ahead of time, they can make arrangements, and you can go visit the kid that you support. And so I highly recommend it. All right, and that's, that's good. Also, I want to say there'll be a... Uh, There'll be a table in the back. If you're listening from home, you can hurry up and get in your car and drive here if you want to see the table. David will have a table in the back where you can sign up. And he also has uh, uh, CDs of, of uh, his being a flautist or a flutist or a flute player or that flute guy. Next thing I want to just say is tonight, we're having a prayer time tonight from 6 to 7 here at the church. The, uh, we'll have... Um, slides that come up for things to pray about. And then as you, as you pray through those slides, when you're done, you, you can get up and leave. It lasts about 25 minutes or so. Um, so you can come for any portion of it or for the whole thing. But we'd just love to have you do that. It's just real quiet, and the slides are playing with a little background music, and we are just praying. People are just, just praying. So we encourage you to come for that. All right, we have been in the book of Hosea. And we've been working through it, and I've told you before, Hosea can be a difficult book. And I'm going to tell you again, Hosea can be a difficult book. We're going to be looking <clears throat> at uh, chapters 8 and 9, which are, the, the, uh, the book is reaching this crescendo of God dealing with his people who are wayward, who are not living for him. But I just want to emphasize something, just so that we keep, here, remember context. We've been start, we started at chapter 1. So remember context here, the goal in this book is repentance. The goal in this book is repentance. The goal in this book is not that God would punish people. He's telling them this is the natural outcome of the way you are living. This is what will come. But the goal is repentance. We saw back in, 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 in uh, chapter 1. He said Israel is going to be like the sands of the sea. I'm not eliminating. He says I'm not destroying Israel. The covenant is still in effect here. In, in um, in chapter 2, he, he says, I'm pleading with you, stop committing adultery against me. And then he says this incredible thing. He says, what shall I do? What shall I do? And he, he says, this is what they're doing. This is what they're doing. This is what they're doing. What shall I do in chapter 2? And he says, this is what I will do. I will love Israel. I will woo Israel back. I will speak tenderly. I'm still betrothed to you. I still love you. You are still my people. You see, the goal is repentance here. In chapter 3, he, says, he tells Hosea to do this, but God says, this is what I'm doing through Hosea. I'm going to buy her back at a great price. Looking forward to the ultimate price that Jesus Christ paid on the cross. I will buy her back. And then, then she will repent. She will return to me. Verse 5, he, he talks about begging them to repent and coming back, returning. In verse 6, the people of Israel, some of them are coming to their senses and they're saying, we need to return. Uh, Hosea and the other people are, are telling the people of Israel, the people of Judah, you need to return. We need to repent. This is the goal that's been running straight through the book. So keep that in mind. Because the big question that people ask is, well, what if they did repent? What if all of a sudden in the book of Hosea, the people said, you know what, God, you're right. You're right. We repent. 
Could they repent and God change his mind? And I believe the answer is yes. And the reason I believe the answer is yes is because we see it happen in another book in the Old Testament. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, repented, put on sackcloth and repented. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring upon them the destruction that he threatened. Now, I don't know how all of this works with God being God and the sovereignty of God and all of these things. I don't know how all this works. But in this passage, God relented uh, uh, for the Ninevites. And he withhold the punishment that they were due because they repented. And so here, remember, God's cry in the book of Hosea is repent, return, turn around, go the other way. So we come to this book, which is, a, is a, this, this passage, which is a tough passage, because it deals with the wrath of God. It deals with the fact that God is getting angry. He has this emotion. We are made in the image of God. We have that emotion. And it's not something that people like to talk about. But let me read you a short just a, a short passage from a book called Free of Charge, written by a man named Miroslav Volv. Miroslav Volv is a, is a Croatian. He's a theologian. And he was, he was trained, um, he was trained in, in a very, I, how do you say this, uh, maybe a very, uh, I don't want to say liberal way, or he just, he, wasn't, he didn't believe that, how can we believe in the wrath of God? The Old Testament is so outmoded, Right? And he he resisted that idea. And then he says this in his book, My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to estimates, over 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My village, the city that I spent most of my time in, were totally destroyed. My people were shelled day in and day out. Some of them were brutalized beyond imagination. How did God react to the carnage? I asked myself. Is he going to be doting over the perpetrators in a, grand, in a grandfatherly fashion? Is he going to refuse to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirm the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to co- complain about the indecency of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because he is loved. What did he say? He said the wrath of, he said, what I saw convinced me that God has to be angry about this. There has to be a God who gets angry about people being brutalized. But we know that. We feel that in our heart. Who doesn't get angry when we see children brutalized? Who doesn't get angry over that? Why? Because God has placed that within us. Because he hates that. Who doesn't get angry when they, say, when they see women or men or people, just people tortured, people abused, horrible things done to them? Who doesn't get angry over those things? We see injustice and it makes us upset. We're made that way because we're made in the image of God. We should be upset. And so God is saying here, and remember, we've talked about this, we're in like a courtroom scene. And there's an indictment, and there's charges that are being laid. So the first thing that comes is God's going to show them the transgression of the covenant. He's going to talk to them about this. And I just want to, um, we're going to hop around in, in 8 and 9, and that's not, this is totally typical in, in the writing of that day. Uh, they didn't, we're Western, and we tend to go 1, 2, 3, A, B. I'm going to go 1, 2, 3 on this thing right now. I mean, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see a 1, 2, 3 with another 1, 2, 3. Because we're Western, and that's the way we do things. And when you're Eastern, especially in ancient Near East writings back then, they'd hop around. It wouldn't, that didn't cause any problems. So we're going to do a little bit. We're going to be ancient. We're going to hop around some. We're going to start first with verse 1. It says in chapter 8, Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord, because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Okay? So first of all, the transgression of the covenant, that's the, that's the main point here. And he's saying, my people have broken my covenant. They've transgressed my law. And he says to them, an eagle is over the house of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, in Deuteronomy 28, 49, there's a prophecy. You are going to rebel against me, and I am going to send an eagle against you. 
That's the prophecy that was made. If you break my covenant, an eagle will come. The main deity of the Assyrians was Nisroch, an eagle deity. And so in 8.1, we have the fulfilling of that prophecy from Deuteronomy 28. He says, put a trumpet to your lips, sound the alarm, an eagle is over the house of the Lord. And so this, this deity, Nisroch, is, is what's being envisioned here. He's saying that's what's happening because my people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. And the law specified how you dealt with sins, how you dealt with transgressions. It had the, the system of sacrifices, the system of feasts, but the emphasis was always on the heart. In all of those sacrifices, in all of those feasts, the emphasis was on a person's heart. What was their heart doing? What was going on in their heart? And for them, they ignored that part. They did the feasts, and occasionally they gave sacrifices, but their heart, just like he says, these people's heart is far from me. And they ignored that part. And so in chapter 9, verse 10, he says, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing all the early fruit on the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, they, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. So what, what's God telling him here? He's saying, look, you've broken, you've broken the covenant. And he reminds them of something. We had this re- grapes in the desert. What is that? It's a picture of joy and delight. I mean, just imagine in an incredibly hot and arid place, you come across grapes that are so delicious. And so God says, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. We had this relationship that was full of joy, that was full of delight. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing early fruit on the fig tree. What is that? That is the first fruits that come. And, and, and for farmers, the first fruits are a cause for joy. Why? Because it's a sign of what's going to be coming now. The harvest is coming in. Yes, we have what we've planted. We're, we're, getting, we're getting the fruit of, of, of our labor. And so what is God saying? We had this wonderful relationship. And you turned and you committed spiritual adultery. In Deuteronomy, he says, I want you to love the Lord your God. And they did not. They loved Baal. And it's easy for us to see what other people do wrong. What's hard for us, and we've talked about this before, is to do the hard work of making application to ourselves. Because here's what happens so many times when we talk about things like this. People will listen. You'll listen to me. We'll listen to the word and we'll go, you know what? Yeah, that person right there, this is their bad. That's who he's talking about right there. And that person over there, those people that do that, yes. What we need to do is we need to stop. When you start thinking about other people, stop. Think about yourself, what do I do? What about me, God? Because what did it mean when they loved Baal? It mean this, they loved comfort. They wanted the easy way out. They loved convenience. They didn't want things to be hard. They loved themselves, not God and not others. Now we can make application out of that. Because I love comfort, Right? I love convenience. It's easy for me to love myself more than I love others. And this is what he's telling them. This is what you've done. This is what you've done. I didn't call you to this. We have to remember as Christians, we are in the most comfortable nation in the world. But he did not call us to seek comfort. He did not call us to seek convenience. He did not call us to love ourselves. Now, I know when we deal with issues and we have to be careful how we treat ourselves and you have to have self-care. I mean, I'm not, you know, understand, I understand that. But the function of our lives is not to make my life better. The function of our lives is to honor God and to glorify God and to reach out to others who need him. And so, what does he say? He says, my God will reject them. They have not served him. They will be wanderers among the nations. Now, he's just been talking about Israel. Remember, we've talked about this. There's the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Southern tribes is mainly Judah. Northern tribes, often called Ephraim. It's the ten tribes that were in the north. And he's saying here, uh, Jose is saying, they're going to disappear. And we know historically that's exactly what happened. The ten tribes were, were conquered and they were spread all over the place. And they never came back and re- some came back and joined the southern, but they never came back and reconstituted the northern tribes. 
Judah got conquered later, but they came back and it became Israel and it grew into the Israel we, we know today. And so all of this is written in the language of covenant. You're going to see some things as you read through Hosea, that some things that almost are shocking, like to hear God saying some of these things. But we have to understand, in the language of covenant, how are things spoken? When God inspired Hosea to write, he didn't inspire Hosea to write like a 21st century American. He inspired Hosea to write the word of God like an, like an Israelite living in around 730 B.C., and so when they talked about covenants, how did they talk? We've talked about covenants before. There's a covenant of blood that God had with Abraham. That's the highest level of covenant there, that there is. But then the, the covenants that most often were used were covenants oftentimes with a, maybe a powerful king and a lesser king. Maybe this powerful king came in with his army and the lesser king realized, I, I got to make peace with this dude because he's going to wipe me out. So they, they would make peace, right? And they would have a covenant. And the covenant would be spoken in the words of love and hate. But the words really meant obedience and punishment. But here's how it would be spoken. If the, 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 the greater king would say, If you love me by paying tribute every year, then I will love you by protecting you from outside forces. If you love me, you know, by keeping the peace in your little kingdom and not rebelling against me, I will love you by giving you economic contracts and, and, and trade agreements so that we both flourish off of this. But if you hate me by rebelling against me, then I will hate you by coming in and conquering you. Right? This is, that's what it is. If, if you've seen Hamilton, King George, his famous line, I'm sending a fully armed battalion to assure you of my love. Right? This is what, so he would say, if you hate me by causing trouble, if you hate me by not paying tribute, then I will hate you by cutting you off, by reconquering you, by doing whatever it takes. So these are the languages of covenant. Now, we have these languages. I mean, we use the language of covenant in our time. We don't think of it all the time that way, but marriage, very similar thing. Or in a family. In a family, there are, there's basic covenants that go along. You know, if, if I say to my children, when they were little, I would say, I'm the father. This is, this is what I do. This is the job that I have. Now, here's what's going to happen. I'm going I'm to take care of you. I'm gonna, you're going to have food to eat. You're going to have clothes to wear. You're going to have a, a roof over your head. But this, is, this, is a, this isn't a one-way street. You need to do some things too. When, when our kids were real little, they were growing up at first, we were at a church that used the King James Version a lot. So I used to always try to use the King James Version just because I would be, try to be silly it, with my kids. And I remember one time telling one of, one, of, one of my younger daughters, just saying this, that if you disobey me in this, there will be much weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Because that's, you know, just to get across to them, this is what's going to go on. What? Well, that's the language of covenant. That's the language of covenant. If you do this, I will smite you with a smite that will be everlasting. You know, I will do. And that's the language of covenant. It happens in families. It happens all the time. And so here we're using that language. Now, how did they violate the covenant? God's going God's to go into detail about this. This is how they violated the covenant. The first thing was in hypocrisy. They were forsaking essential worship and relying on mechanical ritual worship. They were just going through the motions. They weren't worried about their heart in this issue. And so, in verse 12, he says, I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign. Let Israel know this. Because your sins are so many and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool, the ins- excuse me, the inspired person, a maniac. So what is he doing now? He's talking to Israel. He's talking to the northern tribes. He's talking to Ephraim. He said in the previous verse, you've built all these altars. But they are altars for sinning because they are altars to other gods. Why? Because it was inconvenient to travel. Let's just make it. Why travel all that way to go to the altar? Let's just make our own altar right here. And then they'd make their own altar. And pretty soon there'd be an image of Baal at that, by the altar. And there'd be maybe an image of Ashtaroth by the altar. And so the altars became altars of sinning. And then he says, so you, you, regarded, you regarded my law as something foreign. You regarded my law as something that was, I don't like that part. I don't, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want that. I, I, and so you picked and chose. 
They rejected biblical principles. Now, again, this is the time where it's so easy to look around and go, yes, look at our society. That person's rejecting biblical principles and that person's rejecting biblical principles and that person, and that may be true, but right now, think about you. How do we do that? Because it's easy to look at other people and say, how bad. How do we have multiplied altars so that it's more convenient? How do we do that? We do it when we do things for selfish reasons. We do that when you do things for us, hoping that other people will see it and are impressed. We do that when we focus on us in whatever we're doing and not, not focused on God. We begin to create our own little altars. We begin to do things just for ourselves. And he told them, he told them, that, I'm just reading, it's not on the screen, the days of punishment, are the days of reckoning are at hand. Because you've considered the prophet of you've considered the prophet a fool and the inspired person a maniac. Now, how did they violate the covenant? This is the next one. The first thing they did was it was in the area of hypocrisy. The second thing is it's in the area of idolatry. It says, with their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Samaria, throw out your calf idol. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of purity? He says, they are from Israel. This calf, a metal worker has made it. It is not God. It will be broken into pieces, the calf of Samaria. All right? And so he's telling them, what, are you, what is going on here? You're making idols to your own destruction. We know this. Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom made a golden calf, just like they made all the way back in the book of Exodus. He made a golden calf. And I started thinking, how are we like that? How are we like that? Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Well, he's accusing them of idolatry in Hosea, and now suddenly Paul is saying, this is idolatry. This, what we're talking about here, this is idolatry. What is it? Well, it's specifically, he's linking it to the word greed there. He's, he's saying, your greed is like, your, your desire to have more can become idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is when the affection for a created thing competes with or surpasses the affection for God. When something becomes more important to me than God. And then idolatry begins to, to, to be creeping in. You know, uh, we've talked about this. The word lust in the New Testament is a compound word, epithumia. Thumia simply means desire. Thumia is not a negative word. It's just a word for desiring something. Epi is where we get the word epic. It means it's great. It's huge. It's an over-desire. And so when you see the word lust in the New Testament, it isn't necessarily talking about sexual things, although it can be talking about sexual things, but it's, it means very much more than that. It means an over-desire for anything. It can be something good. Your family can become an idol. Lots of things that are good things, can become an idol in our life. And this is why, this is one of those times where we have to think about us, not think about others. Where do I struggle with idolatry? The idols that are in my life. So, he says, idolatry, let's see, did I do it right? I think I did. Idolatry, okay, uh, hypocrisy, idolatry, now, um, treachery. Right, this, is, this, is, this is the areas where they've broken the covenant. Treachery, what does that mean? Well, they've been, they've been treating people terribly. The poor, the disenfranchised, they've been treating them not the way God has commanded them to treat them. They've ignored things. They've ignored people. Why? Because they don't care. They just don't care. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not near me. I mean, that's so easy for me to fall into. This doesn't affect me, so I'm not going to worry about it. But the question is not, does it affect me? The question is, does it affect God? That's the question, because this is the whole thing about Hosea. God is saying, you're wandering, and this breaks my heart. And so we have to understand here, when we talk about treachery, that's how we can do it. They treated people the way they weren't supposed to be treated. They ignored some because they just didn't care. It doesn't bother me. I don't care. It's not in my yard. It's not in my house. not in my neighborhood. This isn't a problem in my city. And they went about things the wrong way. At one point in, in chapter 8, it said, They set up kings without my consent. They chose princes without my approval. 
And, and I mentioned uh, last week or the week before, in, in the last 40 years before Assyria comes, um, there, there, was, there was like eight different kings, five of them assassinated. And they were just running through things, uh, assassination and intrigue. And they were people who didn't look, look to God. And so then he says this in, in uh, chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. Although they have sold themselves among the nations, I will now gather them together. They will begin to waste away under the oppression of the mighty king. What's going on here? He's saying they've trusted political alliances rather than God. In this difficult time in our country, we have to be careful about that. Because if you're putting your hope in a political party, uh, one over the other is going to solve things for you. If one candidate over the other you think is going to solve things for you, then you will be absolutely devastated and depressed if, the thing, if, if things don't go the way you think they should go. And then you have to stop and ask yourself, well, then where is your hope? Where is your trust? God is working to bring his plan about in the midst of us And his plan is not necessarily our plan. We have to understand that. We have to understand. I think this is something everyone agrees. Real change comes when the heart is changed. And so if we trust other things, we have to be careful because they will let us down. And so we see these are the three areas where they've transgressed the covenant. Now God's going to say this is the punishment for transgressing the covenant. In the area of hypocrisy, he said, though they offer sacrifices as gifts to me, and though they eat the meat, the Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. What does that mean? Well, he's saying to them, look, you're going through the motions. It means nothing to you. It doesn't please me that you just just kill the lamb for your sins when you don't even think it's important. You don't even think it's something that necessarily works. And so the punishment is what's going to happen because of their hypocrisy. The worship is going to be futile. They're going to go through the motions. You can't say I'm a Christian and not live like you're a Christian. It doesn't work that way. And then he says they will return to Egypt. What does that mean? What does that trigger in their minds? Egypt is where slavery is. And he says they will return to the bondage that they experienced in Egypt. That's what's going to happen to them because of their hypocrisy. They will not pour out wine offerings to the Lord, nor will their sacrifices please him. Such sacrifices will be to them like the bread of mourners. who eat. All who eat them will be unclean. This food will be for themselves. It will not come into the temple of the Lord. Now I read that, and I'm, I'll be honest, and my first thought was, uh, what the heck is bread of mourners? What this kind of food is? What, what is he talking about there? Well, when someone died, they would have a time of mourning. And oftentimes, people were assigned to be the people who took care of the body. Touching a dead body made you unclean. You couldn't go back into the temple after, for a period of time because you had touched a dead body. Now, if you touched a dead body, that means whatever you touch is not clean either. So they had special bread that they set aside for the people who were in charge of that type of thing. That was the bread of the mourners because once they touched it, that bread's unclean. That bread can't go into the temple with them. They can't go into the temple either. And so what is he talking about? He's talking about something that defiles them so that they can't, they're, not, they're not clean anymore. And he's saying those sacrifices you did, those wine offerings that you did without caring about the reason for them, without caring about your heart, they will defile you rather than bless you and cleanse you, just like the bread of mourners. He says, you're going to eat this bread, but you're going to be cut off from God. You can feed your physical hunger, but your spiritual hunger is not going to be taken care of. He's saying this is what's going to happen to you because of your hypocrisy. Now, because of the idolatry, he says, they will sow, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stock has no head. It will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. They sow the wind and reap to the world. Okay, you know, again, what is that? Well, when a sower goes out to, you know, the, Jesus' parable of the sower. A sower goes out to seed. So he's, he's tossing seeds. Right? He's aiming for certain spaces, typically. It's like for the so he's trying to put them in the right spaces for them to grow. If it's an incredibly windy day, what happens? The seeds go everywhere. So you don't sow on a windy day. If you sow on a windy day, you're not going to reap what you want to reap. This is what the image is. And he says, so that if you sow to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. 
The stalk has no head. It will produce no flower. Infertility of the land. What is he saying? He says, the land's not going to produce for you. I'm going, this is what's going to happen because of what you've done. You're being foolish in the way you act. You're like sowing to the wind. And it's the dumb way of sowing. It's not the right way. And so you will reap the whirlwind. You'll reap the famine. In chapter 9, he continues that thought. And he says, Ephraim is going to be, there's going to be a famine in Ephraim. It's going to be blighted. There's going to be no fruit. Now, at the time that this is being written, they're doing well. Economically, they're doing well. Crops are growing and doing well. And they're making money. And they can't imagine what he's saying. And God is saying, this is going to end suddenly. So he's telling them, repent. Turn. Come back to me. So the hypocrisy, the idolatry, and then the punishment for the treachery is this. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like something no one wants. He says, it's going to be like Egypt. You're going to go back to slavery. The enslavement of the coming uh, Assyrian invasion. And the common denominator here in all of these things, hypocrisy, idolatry, and treachery, is their sin. They've replaced their relationship with God with something else. They took the blessings of God for granted. There's been a few times where we've gone camping uh, um, with kids. And, and uh, when I was a kid, my parents took me camping. And, and I, I'm, I'm a firebug. Man, I was terrible. I can't tell you how many times I got in trouble for setting things on fire. And I loved when we went camping the fire getting close to the fire, throwing things into the fire. What would happen if I throw this in? What would happen if I throw this in? But I learned also when, sometimes on cold nights when we would, we would go camping, if you walk away from the fire, it gets darker and it gets colder. If you walk closer to the fire, it's warmth and there's light. And he's saying to them, you're walking away from where there's warmth and there's light. You won't get that you're, you're going the wrong way. And he keeps reminding them, the goal is repentance. This is what he wants for them. So we have the transgression of the covenant, the God's punishment for the covenant, and now the preservation of the covenant. Now, where is that found? Because these first two are very negative, but the preservation of the covenant is a very positive thing. You know, so what happened there? Well, he, he says that. He says, first of all, I should say this. In, in chapter 8, verse 1, he tells them the covenant. The covenant has not been, it's not been reneged. It's been broken. It has not been annulled. All right, the covenant has been broken, but it's not been annulled. Secondly, he says this line that uh, I love this from, from chapter 8. He says, how long will they be incapable of purity? Now, when you see something like this in Scripture, God isn't asking himself a question because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking this question because it's going to be written down, and it's going to be a question that every one of us will be able to think, ask and think about and run through our mind. How long will they be incapable of purity. And the answer is never. We'll never be capable of purity. We can't. And so we have to decide where will I find purity? And we know it's in Jesus, it's the pure one, it's the innocent one who came on our behalf. And so God is saying here, how long will they be incapable of purity? And the answer is that they'll never be. In, I'm going to have to do something about this. I love this. I came across this this week. I, you know, every once in a while you, you, you bump into something in the Bible that you've never seen before, and you feel like, oh, man. You know, like I've probably written, read through the Bible 500 times, maybe twice, um, and, and I just never saw this before. In Exodus 33, it's an interesting story. In Exodus 33, God tells Moses, these people are stiff-necked. They're stiff-necked. And one of the things he says is, they wear ornaments. And what is that? That's a necklace with gods on it. And God goes, they don't love me. They're stiff-necked people. They, they go astray all the time, and they wear ornaments. And it's interesting because then, when he starts speaking, it says the people hear him, and the people all put their ornaments away. They're all like, darn, he saw. You know? So in Exodus 33, God says, I'm going to send you to the promised land. I'm going to go ahead of you, and the whole place is going to get cleared out. It's going to be the land flowing with milk and honey. And I'm going to send you there. But I'm not going. Because these people have rejected me. They don't want me. So I'm not going to go. But you guys all get to go to the promised land. And Moses says, no. No, God. Not that. Anywhere with you. 
is better than the promised land. And God's telling them, you're going to get what you want. And we have to think about this. You're going to get what you want economically. You're going to get what you want politically. You will get peace because there will be no enemies in that land. You'll, you'll get the land where everything is great. You're making money. The food is good. You have all these places, that all these fields that are ready for you. You know, uh, uh, grape vines and fig trees and olive trees. All this stuff will be waiting for you. Everything you want will be right there waiting for you. And Moses says, the promised land is nothing without you. And we are nothing without you. No gift replaces God. Now, the Bible puts this in here. It puts this in, 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 in this stuff in, in Hosea. For us, for the people of that time, saying, repent, return. But also for us, saying, think about your waves, ways. Think about what you're doing. Think about how you live your life. Because he's telling us there is no purity in us. And so all our purity, all our hypocrisy, all our idolatry, all of our treachery is laid on his son Jesus. So that we'll no longer be slaves. No longer be slaves to fear. We'll no no longer live in fear of the punishment that we know we deserve. And this frees us to live in the power of the spirit. This frees us to live in a way that reflects and glorifies God because that's what he made us for. That's where we find the most joy. That's where we find the most peace. That's where we find the most contentment. But we don't do it. It's not the point is that we do it for joy or peace or contentment. We do it because he's God. And he made us. And he's given us the salvation that we don't deserve. And the only logical answer is, what do you want me to do, God? What do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do with this year? What do you want me to do with this next month? What about this week? What about this day? What about the next five minutes, God? What do you want me to do? Because that then makes it an issue of the heart where our heart is seeking what God wants and has for us. And for the people of Israel and Judah at that time, what happened? They got it flipped. They just said, okay, yeah, sure, I'll do this. I'll do a sacrifice. I'll give, here's, here, throw a little money in a, in a thing for the poor, or I'll do this, or I'll do this. But, but I get, what I want is what I get. This is fluff, but I'm most important. And God says, nope, can't have that. doesn't work that way. And Moses says that too in Exodus 33. Nope, we're nothing without you, God. The best life on this earth is horrific without God. That's what Moses is telling us. This is what Hosea is telling us. And so it it behooves us to be people who stop and think, what am I doing? Where am I going? What am I doing with my life? Maybe you're young and you're thinking, what am I doing with the rest of my life? It's so much, it's such a big thing. And for some of us, we're old and we're like, what are we doing with what we got left? You know, it's not as big, but what are we doing? Because every moment is a moment that could be used for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your word. Thank you for the truth of your word, that we can stand on it that it can call us, um, call us to, to, to step and, and, and look carefully at what's going on in our lives and, and what we're doing, but also it encourages us because we have a God who loves us so much that when you saw that we could not be pure, you supplied the purity for us. And when you saw we could not be holy, you supplied the holiness for us. And when you saw that we could not be good, you supplied the goodness for us. Lord, nothing in this world is more important than you. Help us to see that and live that with our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, just a reminder again that this evening we have, a, we have a, a prayer time from 6 to 8. Love to have you come. Just stop in for a little bit and pray. Also, just a reminder that David uh, will be in the back and you can see stuff on his uh, table. And if you're watching online and you think, oh, oh, shoot, I'm going to miss it, just, just we'll get you in, we can get you in touch with him, give you his website. You, you still won't miss any of if you want something. All right? Thanks for coming. God bless you. You are dismissed. <laughs>